TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Milma from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with William Drentel, editorial director of Design Observer. The role of designers and the role of design conceptually has fundamentally shifted. She'll also speak with Julie Lasky, editor of a new website about design and social change. Nobody has ever really effectively defined what design is. It could be anything, and in fact, it really can be everything. Here's Debbie Millman. This year, I spent my summer vacation in the Catskills with my family. My father's wife was at a writer's workshop in Saratoga, and her departure left me in a house full of men ranging in age from 20 to 70. Consequently, every night after my dad came home from work, the boys gathered into the living room with plastic plates piled high with Taco Bell or KFC or takeout from the local Chinese restaurant, turned on the high-definition television and spent the entire evening watching baseball. In an attempt to participate in the daily routine and to avoid sitting alone in some other quieter part of the house, I joined them every night in the living room with a stack of magazines, my computer, and a copy of David Carson's 1995 book, The End of Print, which I was rereading in an effort to prepare for an interview the following week. When Dad looked over and saw me reading, he took a look at the title, furrowed his brow, and chuckled. Thinking he was berating me for not paying attention to the game, I asked him what could possibly be so funny. He laughed again and nodded at the book. Given the title, he stated with the slightest hint of amusement in his voice, aren't you glad you didn't get into journalism school? The question took my breath away. I had all but forgotten the rejection all those years ago. Two depressing years after graduating college with a degree in English literature, I decided to apply to the Columbia University School of Journalism for a master's degree. My official explanation to surprised friends was simple. Since my father had graduated from Columbia's pharmacy school decades before, we both hoped that I would be able to continue his legacy doing something useful. 
Unofficially, I fancied myself a character from the 1940s screwball comedy His Girl Friday, a modern-day Hildy Johnson of sorts, sparring with my editors and colleagues while wearing couture gowns made by Robert Callick. My rapid-fire dialogue would be accompanied by the rat-tat-tat of my high heels and the snappy way I pulled paper out of my typewriter. But I didn't get in. Then I got a job as a design assistant at a rock magazine and quickly abandoned my ace newspaper reporter aspirations. But sitting in the living room with my dad nearly three decades later, I wondered what my life would have been like as a journalist. Back then, I got my daily updates from the Soho News or Walter Cronkite. Now, 30 years later, Both are gone, and one billion people use the Internet for their main source of information. Despite the web's popularity, more traditional writers, editors, publishers, designers, and even Wall Street decry both the journalistic standards and the business model of this modern mode of disseminating and aggregating intelligence. What is woefully ironic is that in the last half of the 20th century, the media industry fully collaborated in creating an Internet that is mostly affordable, nearly everywhere, and is capable of carrying almost every media previously relegated to individual gadgets and technologies, all in one encompassing environment. It may or may not be as tactile, as fun to rifle through, or as visually seductive, but that seems to be changing every day. As I studied the book in front of me, I couldn't help but wonder, was David's mid-90s prophecy accurate? Are we living in the age of the end of print? I looked around and glanced at my laptop. I had six windows open, one traditional news source, two design blogs, eBay, Facebook, and Twitter. I was also trying to write, but as I typed, I was reminded of poet Jack Foley stating, at the current moment, writing is beginning to seem old-fashioned. Then I laughed out loud, remembering how, 20 years ago, Marshall McLuhan admonished the media by declaring, a typewriter is a means of transcribing thought, not expressing it. Perhaps the age we are living in does not represent the end of print, as much as the end of print culture. We are still reading and writing. What has changed is the definition of how and where we read and write. With five trillion pages of information to experience on the Internet, there is certainly no dearth of material. After the baseball game was over, my younger brother started skimming through my book. He was awed by the gorgeous graphics and couldn't believe how cool it was. On a lark, I signed on to Amazon to order him his very own copy. Alas, wouldn't you know it, turns out the end of print is sadly and regrettably actually out of print. Welcome to Design Matters. I'm Debbie Millman and my guests today are William Drentel and Julie Lasky. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you a bit more about them. William Drentel is a graphic designer. He is also co-founder and the editorial director of Design Observer, a website of design and cultural criticism, which is about to launch a complete redesign and repositioning of the site. We are also joined by Julie Lasky, the editor of Change Observer, part of the redesigned Design Observer. 
Change Observer is a news site about design and social innovation. Julie has been editor-in-chief of ID, the magazine of international design. Julie and Bill, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Bill, for the last year or so, you've been arduously keeping a running tally of magazines and newspapers that have folded. There almost seems to be a certain gleefulness to your announcements. Would you characterize that as accurate? Um, I don't know if it's so gleeful as it is that um, it's just a fascinating time out in the media environment. I mean, just to watch the changes and to follow what's happening with journalism is breathtaking. It's a new world. We're not going to experience the news the way we have for the last 30 years in a year or 18 months, everything will have shifted. So do you foresee a time where there won't be any magazines or newspapers at all? No, I don't. I wouldn't go that far. And I still love my print copy of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. But that's my age and the fact that I spend, you know, 15 hours a day on a computer. So my Times reading is, you know, a luxury from the past that I still enjoy. Remember when the New York Times used to give out those little white gloves so that you could read the newspaper without getting newsprint on your hands. I think those days are long gone. Long. I think that part of what is making this particular time in our culture so incredibly defining is the perfect storm of the transition of how we read our news, how we get our information, as well as the recession that we're living in. And I I was very curious for both of your opinions, Bill, you first, how much of the demise of print would you say is a result of the recession and how much a genuine shift in the way that we're behaving? Oh, I think the shift was happening and would have happened without the recession. I think it's just escalated. But the the recession just was a a game changer Mm -hmm. uh, from overnight for most of these publications. Julie's looking very, very skeptical. <laughs> Julie, what about you? <laughs> As somebody who, who just came from a print publication and made the transition um, online, I find that a very exciting transition. But I don't think print is a model that was completely broken and needed to be replaced. And yet that is the story many people have been disseminating. I think that The world of print publications is very complicated. There are many different kinds of publications with many different kinds of audiences with different ways of of funding those publications and, and providing content. And it seems to me that because many of these publications have been owned by monolithic corporations... When those corporations were faced by a recession or or other kinds of companies, they just didn't examine the subtleties of that world and were all too willing to just eradicate it. So I think that the magazines and newspapers that have folded or are being threatened right now by bankruptcy, I think that in some cases we're seeing tragedies, Mm -hmm. not opportunities. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I read a piece yesterday in Slate that determined that the three hardest hit categories are newspapers, music magazines, and shelter publications. Any possible reasons why those are the three big categories in your mind, Julie? Well, shelter publications is an ironic one because after 9-11, those were the publications that flourished. The thinking was that people... Um, felt insecure and wanted to nest, and they wanted to kind of crawl into the pages of those magazines mm-hmm. and and feel um, more comfortable. But now I think there has been a sudden 
feeling with this recession that many of the products that we buy for our homes are are somewhat self-indulgent and that the idea of cocooning is a little bit of a pipe dream. Not very realistic. Well, it's hard to cocoon if you need to go out and work a second job in order to pay your mortgage. Exactly. If you're losing your home, it really yeah. is tough to cocoon. Well, we also tend to think of this as the world of journalism. I mean, the the categories you're talking about speak to huge shifts. I mean, the, the, there are going to be no record stores left in the world mm-hmm. because Apple has reinvented how we buy music. The shelter magazines are going to get hit by the you know the huge. Um, number of people losing their homes. <laughs> number of people losing right. their homes, as well as you know this this new question out in the marketplace about how much stuff do we all really need? Julie, prior to launching Change Observer, which we'll talk a little bit more about in in, in a bit, you were editor in chief of ID and managing editor of Print Magazine, both of which are happily still very much in print. How do you think the decline of print affects designers? The decline of print is definitely affecting graphic designers. You know, I've worked uh, as an editor in every kind of design discipline. But from just the point of view of graphic design, this is a major outlet for a whole cadre of practitioners. Mm -hmm. I think from what I've seen, many are are making a, a splendid transition to online media, digital media. But I know a number of very talented editorial designers who just simply don't have the opportunities they used to. And I would, and that also... That also applies to illustrators, of course, as well. Last year, you delivered the commencement address at the Cranbrook Academy of Art, wherein you stated, and I'm going to read a couple of sentences from your address. As a writer, I can tell you that although the hand is identified with craft, materiality can be thought as well as felt. You could hear the click of a well-constructed sentence being assembled in your head, You can feel the stretch of a good mental workout. You don't need to get your hands dirty to be a craftsperson. You need to get your minds dirty. And where I will point an accusatory finger at technology is in providing shortcuts to the slow, deliberative process of acquiring a skill which is guaranteed by working the hand. If you're not careful, technology, with its immediacy and high resolution, swaps the illusion of mastery or wisdom for the real hard-won thing. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Talk about dirty hands versus dirty minds. <laughs> well, like you, I was an English major, and I came into the design world thinking in ways that were different from most of the people that I was writing about. I had to really work at developing a visual sensibility, but I did understand and learn the craft of writing. And particularly this speech was aimed at the revival of craft and all the thoughts that have come from the DIY movement and this obsession we all have now with with handling things. And I was raising some questions in that speech about it for a number of reasons. People think that craft is a reaction against technology, that it's a, a, a counter movement. And I'm not sure I always agree with that. One of the things I said in that speech was, when have we ever not been a society of couch potatoes? When have we never sat in on sofas and loved technology? When were we going into our basements and throwing pots? I think that we have always loved technology and we have always been immersed in activities like sports or crafts that have just been satisfactory in another kind of way. And that speech was really about trying to add a little complexity to this 
binary craft versus technology equation we seem to have right now. Well, I think what's interesting, and I think what designers and writers are reacting to, is the lack of craft that is sometimes evident in the speed at which technology is allowing us to post our ideas, whether they be blogging, whether they be crowdsourcing, because so many people have the capacity and the capability of being able to participate in this technological language of sorts. It does reduce the standards to some degree that we've become accustomed to and that we've all aspired to be able to reach by giving the ability to almost anybody to be able to create a publication online or to create a blog or to create some sort of vantage point for other people to participate in or with. And I think that that has created designers and writers, maybe rightly so, being highly defensive about what is possible in the realm that they used to own. I would absolutely agree with you that technology has given an illusion of mastery, as I said in my speech, and professionalism that has been quite detrimental. But what concerns me about it isn't that there isn't wonderful quality still being produced through these technological means. And it's not that there are so many people who are aspiring to be designers. It's that I'm not sure the market cares as much as they ought to. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I also find that the people that are tending to complain most are the people that have the most to lose. I don't hear a lot of young people complaining about the technology. Mostly I hear a lot of older seasoned professionals complaining. Well, there's another point also with all this feeling of the uh, that we're abandoning materiality. We really do miss many of the habits that surround, say, the New York Times. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is going to happen to our Sundays when the Sunday New York Times disappears? I can already tell you because I read most of the Sunday paper now Friday night because I read it online. So whereas I used to breathlessly wait for the style section to arrive on Sunday because I only got part of my paper on Saturday and the style section wasn't a part of it, I could now read it Friday night when it's first posted and I don't have to wait for it at all. Which is obviously impinging on your club scene, you know, participation. <laughs> yes. Well, you know the party girl I am. <laughs> well, I know, but then what's, what's that going to do with clubs? Because for every Debbie Millman, I assure you, are a thousand other people who are just like you who yeah. are taking those Fridays where they would normally be contributing to the entertainment economy of urban areas <laughs> and staying home and reading, you know, the Sunday paper. Well, speaking of entertainment economy, you are both about to launch. Uh, what Bill has titled Design Observer 3.0, which is the biggest redesign in the site's six-year history. Design Observer is expanding to a mega media site with four channels. You have, Bill, you've brought Julian to run Change Observer. You're also launching several other channels under the Design Observer empire, Places and Media Observer being the others. Can you tell us what's going on? What What's happening? Why did you decide to do this? When is it all happening? And what do you anticipate is going to happen? If we go back to where we were talking before about what's happening with print media, uh, the thing that I, I mean, if I was going to step back from it, what's really interesting is the degree to which design has become a just a significant cultural force in the, in the, in economies around the world. 
So in the old days, you know, the biggest story in a design magazine might be the new mobile lo- oil logo by, you know, Chemayef and Geismar. But now this, the stories are different. Um, the way that you can think about design as being a part of popular culture, um, the way we now talk about redesigning our economy, the way we talk about redesigning our cities, the role of designers and the role of design conceptually within our lives has fundamentally shifted. So that the change observer and design observer and the places the, these new sites we're building are all at the, at the edge of these changes. How do you think this change occurred? Why is design so much more a significant contributor to culture than it's ever been? I, I think two things that are in conflict. I think one, there's a level in which basically the, the media world started referring to everything as design. You know, everybody designs their kitchen. Mm-hmm. Everybody is an architect. So it really, you think everybody it designs every piece of paper that comes out of their computer. So every citizen is now a graphic designer. So there's that level in which the word design has become ubiquitous to a degree that it's almost meaningless. And at the same time, sort of totally opposed to that is is a, a real shift where designers are now coming out of school, not interested in only doing corporate logos or on air television graphics for cartoon channels, but are now actually wanting to be involved in economics, in the, uh, the how we're going to better distri- distribute water in India. I mean, there's, there are, is a huge shift. A lot of it has to do with the schools. That There's a generation of designers coming out of schools, not necessarily the traditional art schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are schools that didn't really have these reputations a decade ago. IIT in Chicago, the D school at Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, I mean, to name only a few, are, are, is a different kind of design school than the traditional art school. So there's a generation, of, I mean, I think the shift is because there's a new generation of designers who have different aspirations for what being a designer involves and what it can accomplish. I would agree with both of those things, and I would also add that making design a far more general pursuit has a lot of economic advantages to people who are practicing. I mean, when we saw in the last recession when desktop publishing came in and people had a much more efficient ways of practicing, how offices shrank and how designers really had to look for, um, go beyond the traditional clients and try to expand their capabilities. And I think that this has happened in a much larger, even before this recession, but all the way through the 90s and into the 21st century, we have seen designers trying to find a competitive advantage by extending their palette of different services and can do that quite legitimately because nobody has ever really effectively defined what design is. It can be anything. And in fact, it really can be everything. So in terms of extending your reach, obviously, you're now extending the reach of Design Observer. You'll have these different channels. Talk a little bit, if you can, about the different channels and what each channel will essentially be offering the viewer. And the participant. We're going to have four channels. Uh, what we've known and loved as Design Observer is being uh, retitled Observatory, and we'll continue to focus on writing about design. And there we're really talking about long-form essays. Mm-hmm. It, it never was a blog in the sense that the word is used. It's always been about feature writing. Change Observer, which Julie is editing, is, is going to be focused on design and social innovation. 
meaning that it will cover stories of designs, engagement with real problems in the world, and tr- both from a news standpoint and from a, um, an analysis and critical standpoint. We're not talking about designers writing about design in a trade sense. I mean, we're talking about covering... We will have a Washington report where we're talking about what's happening at the Commerce Department and the efforts to create a national design policy for the U.S. economy. We're going to be talking about the Social Innovation Council at the White House. This is a very, very different kind of story that right now is not reported on seriously. And if it was reported, it would be a, a small mention only in the New York Times. Julie, tell us a little bit more about the type of articles that we're going to see on Change Observer. Absolutely. Um, Among the first stories that we're going to be posting is one about a new refrigeration unit that's being developed, solar-powered. Okay, exciting. It is pretty much because it's going on camelback to distribute medical supplies to people in desert areas of Kenya. And it's a project that's being spearheaded by a group within Art Center College of Design working with local organizations. How do you find out about these types of things? Well, a lot of design studios and especially academic departments are doing a lot right now with social design, whether it's in the areas of climate change or in rural development or emergency shelters. So we have a pretty good pipeline and we're getting a lot of information. So besides the refrigerator article, what other kinds of articles will we expect be expected to see? There's one on Ripple Effect, which is a project by IDO and design firm in Palo Alto, working with groups in India, not to discover water so much, but transport it, which is a very difficult process in India. And they've come up with all sorts of innovative solutions to do that. And actually, one of the most exciting stories that we're starting with isn't a story at all. It's a dialogue between Kurt Anderson and Douglas Rushkoff, two very well-known cultural critics, who are talking about the economic meltdown and what it portends for the future. They've both come out with recent books, and they have very different opinions about it. And they had an email conversation that lasted five days and 10,000 really brilliant words written. We're going to post every single one of them. I love the Internet. And tell us a little bit about Places and Media Observer. Places is an academic scholarly journal, which has basically been the leading um, journal in the area of urbanism and city planning Mm -hmm. for the last 25 years. It is being relaunched on Design Observer as an online publication with a fantastic new editor named Nancy Levinson. And their entire archive of 1,350 articles is now a part of the Design Observer archive. And Media Observer will be our channel for audio and video, um, and will include a number of different shows as well as you know new programming that we're going to develop over the next year. Now, one interesting detail I've discovered in my research about Design Observer's redesign are the changes that you are implementing for commenters. Blogs tend to have very popular audiences of blogger, commenter readership, and you have changed the policy on Design Observer. And so you've asked your commenters to keep the comments short, to the point, on topic, to avoid being carelessly, abruptly dismissive. And an example of that would be, this is stupid, end of comment not to ask what the topic at hand has to do with design, which is a very, very popular criticism. And you're also asking people to use their real name. 
I'm very interested in that. Why are you asking people to use their real name? How does that change the dynamic? Um, well, we're not requiring that people use their real name, but the, I mean, the answer is really simple. If you look at a thousand comments, the ones that tend to be the most on topic, the most thoughtful in pushing back at an article or criticizing an article tend to be the ones where people are willing to put their name in the sand. Mm -hmm. The ones that are snarky and basically say, oh, this is really stupid, I hate this, which doesn't really further any kind of intelligent, thoughtful conversation, tend to be the ones which are unsigned. On a recent post about Seymour Quas's new monograph, Armin Witt, the founder of the design blog Speak Up and Brand New, defended some of the shorter, more dismissive comments in the discussion, and he referred to this type of contribution as the new communication. Would you agree with that? I don't, I don't think Armin was talking about a four-line comment, this is stupid. <laughs> this is stupid is three. Three. <laughs> three words. I can't count. I, I mean, I don't think that's what Armin was talking about. I, I, and well, I, don't I think, think he was talking about the brevity, and I think that he was using Twitter as an example. If we are used to speaking or communicating in 140-character statements, that why would something that is short and maybe dismissive be unwelcome? Well, dismiss. I mean, there's a there are lines here between being thoughtfully critical and being dismissive and being snarky. I mean, there's there's some kind of continuum there. Mm -hmm. What we're finding. I mean, our our criteria isn't whether it's long or short. Our criteria is does it establish a point of view which contributes to a conversation? I understand. Um, Julie, an, another quote from your Cranbrook speech, which which I love, and and this Thank is you. and this speech is actually something that can be found in the archives of Design Observer. Uh, this uh, was something that came out last year at this time, and you refer to the conundrum of participatory techniques and technologies, and and you write a further concern about authenticity that has helped to rekindle our love affair with craft lies in the power to disguise ourselves through technology. We fret about inventing online persona and communicating avatar to avatar, as if we haven't always constructed false selves in some form or another and hidden behind them. When were we ever transparent? We worry that lurking behind every digital photograph is the threat of manipulation, as if photos haven't been retouched since the birth of photography. When we haven't edited experience, consciously or unconsciously, as a rhetorical strategy to make a point or win people over. I wonder how you feel about that statement now. Do you think that it still has the same resonance? I hope so. I really do feel that whenever there is a an earth-shaking new form of technology or media or communications, as we're all experiencing right now in this transition from magazines to the web, that we look at the past as some kind of golden age and we look at the present as something that's extremely corrupting. And I think that we're too quick to cast off what true experience has been in the past. 
I don't advocate that we get online and in anonymous ways, cloak our identities and, and, and attack each other, use ad hominem attacks, which is what Bill is really saying. I don't welcome a lot of the comments that come on the internet because I have been so privileged as a print editor not to publish any letters if I didn't want to. Uh, nobody ever questioning it, nobody ever suggesting for a second that if I didn't publish a letter that came from one of my readers, it was an act of censorship. Mm-hmm. There is so much control. And I think you can have the same dictatorial authority as an editor on online, but there is the expectation that you're going to open up the gates and let everybody in, let them say whatever they think about it, that I don't fully endorse either. So if on one hand, I'm suggesting, you know, it hasn't been a golden age in the past of, of, of great authenticity. And today we have a, a time when we're all just, you know, it's not true that we're all just hiding behind these these funny identities and doing damage. Neither do I believe that snarky behavior is, is appropriate. And that particular incident um, that you were referring to in Design Observer, a comment about Seymour Quast, I think struck at the hearts of many of us who have been in the design world for a long time, because here was one of our heroes. And if we didn't personally like Seymour Quaster, admire his work, we at least acknowledge that he was a giant in authority. And here came somebody washing up in that great sea of, you know, internet audiences that clearly had no idea who he was and certainly had no respect for him. Well, it was very disrespectful. It was very, very disrespectful. And I think what's interesting about those type of comments is all of a sudden you do get lots of people that are interested in signing their names really state their case. And and that's that's part of the, I think, excitement of these conversations is that you do, if, if someone is afraid of rocking the boat by identifying who they are with a comment like that, the, the flip side of that is you do end up getting very, very vitriolic, turbulent discussions, which can be very exciting to read. Not that I'm by any means uh, asking you to change your policies. I think what's so interesting about this time that we're living in is we are creating the methodologies for this new communication. And, and I think that's, that's what I'm hoping Armin meant in that we were as writers, as journalists, as editors, as designers, given a lot of rules. And we were playing within those rules for a very long time. And all of a sudden now, there are no more rules and everything is being recreated and new methodologies are being put forth that are all being figured out as we put them forth. There's not one model for that, Debbie. Right. And I it's mean, so, so exciting. I mean, when we talk about Design Observer, we're talking about only one community of readers. Right. The culture of that community and the rules that that community creates for itself and the way we guide our way through our topics and the things we choose to write about is going to be totally different than a different kind, other kind of community that could be also up for designers. So six years ago, you shocked the design community with a brand new concept, a blog, a design blog. There were only about one or two substantial other blogs at that time. Six years later, you are now on the eve of launching a media empire that will once again change this time not only the design community, but I think the journalistic community as well. Where do you see this is a, this is one of those big far out questions that people generally tend to hate, but I, I can't help myself uh, in asking, where do you see Design Observer 
10 years from now? I, I don't know whether it's five years or 10 years, but I think there's a shift going on in which design is simply this, you know, open-ended, large movement with many kinds of participants, and that Design Observer is going to be the place that does the serious writing about it in a way that is approachable and understandable by a general audience. I mean, I think we're going, we're way past trying to create a you know a trade magazine or a site for the design profession. Mm-hmm. I agree. We're really, really grappling with what would it be like to write about design on the front page of the New York Times or in the New Yorker or on Slate. And how do we expand our universe of writers so that the way we think about design is richer and more interesting? The whole question when we were talking about the comments is we're not really writing for the same communities anymore. We are now open to a a huge, potentially huge, definitely international community as you said not everybody is playing by the same rules. And, of course, not everybody is going to be expected to know who Seymour Quest and anybody else is. So many of our attitudes and emotions have come from the fact that, really, design has been a small world. And the world of design publications has been fairly well demarcated. They've had their loyal audience base, never more than tens of thousands. So now we're looking at a far more diverse world, potentially huge audience. And it's really going to change the way that we report on things, the sorts of things that we report on, and a relationship to our our readers. Well, I wish you all the best on the eve of your relaunch. Uh, Congratulations on all of your success so far, and I'll be looking forward to watching as you grow and develop. I want to thank you both for joining me today on Design Matters. William Drentel, Editorial Director of Design Observer, and Julie Lasky, Editor of Change Observer. Design Matters will be back on the air this fall. Till then, please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman will recommence regular production this fall. Look for it on the Design Observer website on the Media Channel. You can also subscribe to it in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.